Hello and welcome to The Watch, part of the Channel 33 podcast feed. My name is Chris Ryan and on the other line, the chief television critic for the Daily Planet, it's Andy Greenwald! I think that would be a pretty good job actually because honestly, when aliens are wrecking half the city like on the reg, yeah. I could write anything. If people really <laughs> don't have time to You could be like I hate Mad Men. Stories. Finally. <laughs> You know I mean? Do you imagine like the 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 guy who had like the the page sixteen Mad Men column the day that Superman and Zod did battle in the city square? I feel like that would be that would be kind of taking an L that day, you know. <laughs> like what? I, I I mean I would imagine it's a similar feeling that the people you know like New York Times has people recapping TV shows, right? Like this yeah. is this is a thing. Yeah. But I guess. Now we're getting into dicier waters because as far as I know, General Zod has yet to do much property damage in the city where I live. <laughs> just IP damage. No, no, he's just he's just buying up a lot of property like along the, the west side rail yard. I know, he's he's doing be, damage to the soul of the he's city. He's keeping the jets from moving to Manhattan. Uh, Andy, well, this is our second pot of the week. It's a new, new, new deal for us. Uh, you were listening to The Watch. Just by the way, you can subscribe to The Watch on the Channel 33 podcast feed. You can get that on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Just search for Channel 33. That should come up. Uh, and we wanted to do some in and out today. We're also going to do a little bit of a longer segment on Fargo because we yeah. didn't get a chance to talk about that on Monday. You can listen to our Monday podcast where we talked a lot about Creed. Uh, also on wanna, iTunes and SoundCloud. Here's how I'm thinking about this. Mm. I'm thinking as the Monday podcast was like a cozy chair, mm -hmm. and this is the ottoman. So should you know I, I mean? So this is even more relaxed. Yeah, put your feet up. Put your feet up. And let's it really breaks away in. from the formal, the formal nature of our usual pods. Mm -hmm. um, Andy, let's play in and out really fast because we've had a couple of trailers. I know people love it when we talk comic books. They love it. <laughs> um, but last night on Jimmy Kimmel, there was uh, the Batman vs Superman trailer, number four or three or whatever came out. Um, I'm glad that we have, um, you know, we have more Lex Luthor in our life. That was. Uh, that was sort of the main takeaway from that trailer. Also, they gave away most of the movie. Literally the whole movie, yeah. because they made it clear that they won't be V'ing each other the whole time. They'll, <laughs> no. be, they'll, be, they'll be palling up by... Part-time V'ing, yeah. <laughs> to, ...to fight um, what appears to be the Hulk, but with lava in his veins. So that's a good look. Right, so uh, let's start with this. Are you in or out on the... I, I don't know if I want to say the trailer, or the entire Batman vs. Superman experience so far. Are you in or out? I'm so out. I'm so out. But <laughs> it's here's okay my to be thought. out. It's okay, America. Chris, what if, the more I think about it, doesn't Dawn V. Justice sound like a woman who writes, like, paperback crime books? <laughs> like, didn't she write the Scarpetta books? Yeah, oh, just a, a, a tough medical examiner in her early 40s who's got two <laughs> ex-husbands. Tough drinking, maybe she's smoking a little bit too much, but yeah. she's dedicated to her job. And then when a, when a new criminal shows up in town and starts sending messages to her on the corpses. Right, is it someone from her past? Don V. Justice. No, Don V. Justice is the writer. So which is, who is the who is Don V. Oh, Justice? Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, 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 Sa like Sally Scarpetta. But I know that it's Cake Scarpetta is the, the actual person. <laughs> yeah, it's like... Um, Vicky Leatherette, right? <laughs> Chief Inspector Leatherette. That's good. It's better um, to think about these things this way than to deal with the crushing reality of this. But okay, here's the thing. I, I, I said I was way out, way back on our last show, which was you know just days just ago, three, threes of days ago. So here's a, here's another way I want to frame it, and you can tell me if I'm wrong because as you said, people love it when we go super deep on comics. Just just put on put on your four color waders and just come into the come into the nerd come into the cranberry it. bog of takes. Yeah. They had no other choice. Here's my thing about about 
this movie and about DC in general because they want to have a big universe to compete with the Marvel movies and Warner Brothers want they want that they want that IP, right? Yeah. They had no other choice because if you look at their biggest heroes, they make no sense together. They're kind of goofy, especially when they're all standing in a row. You can't have them be kooky because other than Batman, who is just a rage monster, they're all essentially gods, right? Or aliens. So the only option you have to make a sort of joined universe is to just go darker than midnight. Right. That's all they had to do. And I'll take it a step further. Joint team-up movies are essentially ridiculous and impossible. And we've learned this in two Avengers movies because what you cannot do is give a movie any kind of homogeneity or feel or aesthetic. You can't have, like, like Ant-Man was sort of a goofy caper film. Mm -hmm. Once you put Ant-Man in the Avengers, he's just a guy who can shrink who's also going to punch people. And so anytime those characters have teamed up in any other medium, it's really been about the... The, the gravitational pull of the writer's big ideas to sort of captures these people. But you can't, there's no way to make it work. There's simply no way. Right. That's my take. Uh, I, I think that the benefit of the doubt that I will give this entire endeavor is that I guess I'm suspending judgment until I actually see a different director who I might actually like take, take on one of these properties. So like, right. I guess like I'm kind of interested in suicide squad just because David Ayer is, is a weird and interesting filmmaker to me, but uh, I'm all good on Zack Snyder. I'm all good on the leveling of major cities at the expense of two guys punching each other. Um, I don't really know, understand. Like, Doomsday seems like a, a really, like, that's the bad guy in this movie. And I'm not giving anything away because it's in the trailer. Don't know why you guys felt like a year ahead of time needed to calm people's nerves about Batman and Superman fighting. If you're going to name the fucking movie Batman versus Superman. <laughs> It's like, we expect the rivalry, guys. It's, yeah. <laughs> I didn't come to the Malice in the Palace to watch ballet. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, it's... I'm just looking forward to another look. You know, I mean, like, there's... there's I understand that the, these are going to skew darker, that they're going to look shadowy, that it's going to take place in this sort of, like, F Frank Miller fever dream. But I would but love an opportunity. To, I would love someone else to have an op opportunity to direct one of these movies. I agree. And let me say one other thing. It's not just a native, like, anti-DC bias, which I've copped to in the past. It's the trailer hinges on, I think it's Affleck just sort of, you know, like, gutter whispering, it's time you learn to be a man mm -hmm. or what it means to be a man. <laughs> I'm out on that concept in all media. Like, we're good on that. You know, we have 15 <laughs> years of hard-boiled television shows that are essentially that. Right. And yeah. they didn't need to level cities with their punching, although that might have livened up like low winter sun, for example. That's that's kind of a played out idea. We're good. We're good. So it, it has nothing to do with the level of budget or the the popularity of the superheroes. Like if that's your core conceit, we're, we're in for some rocky roads. Can I ask you if you weren't sort of professionally obligated to have a take on this? Do you think that you would still go see this movie? Like, is it because it's on the line no. where it's like if I was just like a self-respecting 38 year old who didn't have to go see these movies for a living, I don't know that I would care enough to engage with this. I'm not going to see this movie. Is that cool? <laughs> I, I want to be very upfront about that. I feel like I have not hidden behind any kind of mask or cape or cowl on this issue in the year plus we've been talking about You're it. You're going to see not, it. I'm not going to see it. Dude, you, you and longtime listeners of our exchanges know that movie time is a precious commodity. That's true. Around, around Greenwald Way, you know? <laughs> and... And I'm not going to the pavilion 
to have my body feasted upon by vermin at 10 in the morning. What if I told you that Batman and Superman fight on the Ben Franklin Bridge while ATVs and motorcycles fly around them with Meek Mill playing? Would that be interesting to you? I would throw all my money at the screen I'm looking at you on right now and just say, take it, take it. Okay, let's keep keep it moving because we have a lot of stuff to get to today. I do want to talk... under the cover of darkness another trailer came out last night something that i was definitely not checking for uh in in the same way that i am definitely not checking for most things that ryan murphy does but the american crime story the case against oj simpson the people versus the people versus so dawn v oj simpson (laughs) um (laughs) no ryan murphy's limited series uh, about the oj simpson case um starring sarah paulson cooper gooding jr Courtney B. Vance, John Travolta, David Schwimmer. Schwimmer back. Selma Blair, my girl. Uh, Blair back. A dramatic, you know, reconstruction of the O.J. Simpson uh, case in Los Angeles back then and in the 90s. And I, against all odds, I was like, I'm super interested in this. Yeah, it looks really good. It also, you look at this trailer and you're like, why why has no one done this? It's been 20 years, which is insane. Yeah. And – I think for people who are who are considerably younger than us, it's probably very hard to communicate how big a deal this was and how completely dominant it was for an entire year, um, longer, in fact, considering you know its after effects and everything. Um, here's why I'm the trailer and the all the marketing, the sort of quiet 10 second teaser trailers they've been dropping have been excellent. So you know, shouts to the FX marketing team, which mm-hmm. is you know something we like to give props to on this podcast. We're big on marketing teams <laughs> yeah. and hot IP. Um, Speaking of hot IP, the O.J. Simpson expanded universe, yeah. the Marsha Clark expanded universe. There's some stuff there. The, the, the Lance Ito origin story. It's it's just it's begging. <laughs> it's begging to be told. Um, here's why I'm in on it. I hear all of Hollywood's hottest young a- actors are trying out for that role. They all want to be Ito. <laughs> young Ito. T- t- wait your turn, Miles Teller. Yo, young Ito <laughs> colon Dawn of Justice. <laughs> that that basically writes itself. That does work. Um, here's why I'm in on it, because as you alluded to, we are both completely allergic to Ryan Murphy, but I will give that guy props forever for his sense of, of theater, his sense of telling big, crazy stories. I just don't want to see the stories he's telling. So what gives me hope about this is that the people who actually made it, I'm going to butcher a name here, but it's Scott Alexander and Larry Kashewski. Not so good once you get the S's and Z's and Clinton deploys Vals to Bosnia situations, but, uh... Those are the dudes that also did um, the Larry Flint movie. Okay, People vs. Larry Flint. They like yeah, they like going versus. Yeah, they like going v the people. Yeah, um, I would see their version of Batman v Superman also. But these guys are very very talented, and so this is their show more just as much as it's Ryan Murphy. So intriguing. Even I mean, if it is Ryan Murphy, you know he's a, he, he he likes to delve into melodrama and camp, and this is a very melodramatic and campy part of American life is for as serious as it was. That's right. There were so many unbelievable twists and turns. There were so many insane supporting characters uh it's gonna be really interesting to watch it i'm, I'm very excited for this like you chris mm. ryan murphy is a provocateur it's true he likes playing so, with people's expectations so we're in we're in speaking of fx let's talk about their crown jewel right now i i really thought i talked to you into talking about coldplay today but i guess we're, we're just gonna punt to monday i'm not gonna my take on coldplay is it's soft let's hold let's let's save it for monday um it's, it's soft and squishy like potato rolls <laughs> um we wanted to spend some real time talking about fargo right because yeah. we have said a couple of times that we think it's the best thing on tv right now we should have some sort of tv championship belt that we we pass it off to you know what i mean we did those at grantland but we should have some sort of like current 
who's got the conch right now? You know, like that's a great and, idea. And and, and I, I would say that for for most of this uh, fall and winter, it's been uh, Fargo. Um, fantastic episode this last week. Um, kind of amazed when I'll, I'll be watching it and and I'll, I'm just like, wow, this is just a gangster movie. Like it it, it essentially is just like an, a really beautifully told, somewhat idiosyncratic uh old school gang war movie um what did you think about this last episode definitely one of the most tense of the season it, it's such a it was such a great episode i mean in it, but it was a great episode in ways that were familiar to the way the season is built so far in the sense that it built expertly on everything that had been established to date that it um put characters in extreme situations and then had them it seemed to extract the most fun possible from any of those pairings. Yeah. Like we hadn't spent that much time alone with Hanzi, who's the Native American character. When he goes on a road trip, stuff goes down, most yeah. of them being cops. <laughs> um, we got to see uh, Kirsten Dunst and Jeffrey Donovan, you know, have the sort of like burn notice noir lost episode that we never got to see. Yeah. Um, it's we, we got to see Jesse Plemons just in a phone booth, which he actually works well against inanimate objects, I would say. Um it was a lot of fun, and it, you know, it mined so much story from what I thought was going to be kind of a write-off because everything that happened in this episode was happening in the margins of last week, right? Yeah, this it, is like we, what happened in the. It's an hour-long episode of what happens in the last thirty seconds of the previous episode. Yeah, that's right, and it and it illuminates it in the in the most fun way possible. And you're talking about classic gang stories. I mean, how much more classic is it that they're all headed to the same doom locale? I mean. This is, of course, like every Western ever made, but I was also thinking of true romance, you know, when someone who's way over their head calls for a meeting in a certain place and you know it's not going to end well. Yeah, it has um, that feel. That's where we're headed, to the Motor Lodge. And, of course, for you know, for the real heads, the fans of Fargo Season 1 know that I think that Lou Salverson refers to it as a massacre. Um, and they had some fun with that idea earlier in the season with the, the Ronald Reagan movie with the same title. But yeah. we're, we're headed to some dark stuff. But let's talk about... Here's what I want to talk about about the show going into its last two episodes. I w think about how expertly the show has made us fall in love with a collection of characters. That is something that is TV 101. It is the basic building block of any long-running show where by the, you know, by season 2, by season 3, even by season 6, even if the plot has sort of gone astray, we continue watching because we just love these made-up people so much and mm -hmm. we love being in their company. This show, Fargo Season 2, has done that work in, with incredible economy. In eight episodes, we actually care about everyone, well, I was going to say everyone surviving, but even a couple of people who did not survive, right? Uh, if the show suddenly gave, went on a 15-minute tangent about Noreen from the butcher shop and uh, Bear's Kid still in lockup, I would not be disappointed because those characters, even in sketches, have been pretty richly drawn. The relationship to character and plot is an interesting one there. I actually would have said something that's pretty close to the opposite to you, which Bring is that it. one of the reasons why I think this season is singing like the way it is, is that it doesn't have what's sort of affected the second season of The Nick, where you have some momentum going with Thackeray or you have some momentum going with Birdie or whoever you're interested in or Aldron, and then all of a sudden it's uh, who killed Inspector Spate for for 10 minutes or whatever and all the b c d e f barrow trying to bilk some contractor plots that you see um that doesn't happen on fargo even though it's it's a huge cast of characters with a lot of different um balls up in the air everything feels part of the main thread and That's i'm right. not waiting for you know 
something to somehow in a miracle hail mary we're gonna figure out why this person who's been doing their thing all the way over there you know i have a feeling like that i even if it's not explicit and i think in some ways fargo has asked as many open-ended and sometimes even frustratingly open-ended questions as leftovers does without answering them and may not answer them we may not know why they're seeing ufos we may not know um you know whether or not whether or not Kirsten Dunn's character is touched or is see- having visions or what, whatever. Or what about Ted Danson's hieroglyph- hieroglyphic scribble? Down? Yeah, why he's why he is why he is trying to to recreate the inside of King Tut's tomb. Um, the, it all feels part of a piece. It all feels like it's it's singing in the same it's it's rowing in the same direction, and that is is it's it's minor miracle. Like it, it's not a complicated story. It's not even a story that particularly. Um. I mean, it's not like it's like, oh, it's so prescient for today. Today's world is to see Kansas City trying to make a move on the the, the Gerhards. It's a, that doesn't matter. But it's just so expertly well done, well acted, well written, well shot, well cut, well scored. It's like a, it's it's a hymn to the power of filmed entertainment. Well, let's talk about something that you just mentioned, though, which was the leftovers. And here's the comparison that I would make, which is in ways big and small. I mean, I love Fargo season one, but both shows prove the mutability of television and the possibility for improvement. Because if you look back on season one of Fargo, it did not meet many of the characteristics that you're talking about in that it felt pretty fragmented. Mm-hmm. There was the Martin Freeman plot that crossed paths with the Billy Bob Thornton plot, but by the nature of that relationship, it could not keep interacting for eight episodes or however many episodes the first season was. So they were split apart. So we had the whole part with Adam Platt that actually ended up being more or less about a callback to the Fargo movie. Yeah, with the Oliver money Platt, right? Oh, sorry, Oliver Platt. Yeah. Adam Platt is his brother, who is the great food critic from New York Magazine. Um, I thought the Oliver Platt stuff was great fun, but it did not. Ne- it didn't feel particularly necessary. The other thing that the first season did was put us in more or less in the POV of bad guys, and then have Molly and Gus swoop in from below and surprise us and slowly take over the story. Yeah, this season put us directly with the good guys, much more lovable people. Obviously, we're with Mike Milligan, who's a fascinating character, and with the Gerhards, who are rough, who are rougher characters. But from the very beginning, Noah Hawley made the choice to tell one story and to ground it in sort of a heroic figure. And I feel like that was a very, very smart way to draw everyone in quickly and to make it make your point quickly and tell the story well from day one. You know, this is not a show that discovered the show it wanted to be in episode six. I would say that subtly Fargo made just as many improvements in its second season as The Leftovers. I think the first season was more widely praised, so it's it's not as perceptible publicly about just how much improved it is. But the fact that there wasn't four sort of slow-paced, ponderous episodes that yeah. start to circle an idea, the fact that we were immediately brought into this world, the fact that it did something where it introduced somebody like Rye Gerhart and then immediately takes them out of it in a way that actually felt right for the story. Um, and the fact that, you know, we're not spending... It, I love Mike Milligan, and I love the character, and I think Bokeem Woodbine's been remarkable, but part of the reason why any of these characters are so remarkable is that we're not over depending on them to carry the entire show because you can have right. everybody be idiosyncratic and quirky and have interesting, you know, their accents can be funny and like they can tell weird anecdotes and then you get out of there. 
And you don't yeah. have to spend an entire time with Martin Freeman or with Billy. I mean, Billy Bob was pretty electric that that season, but he's primarily electric because he's got limited screen time. And that was the lesson that they learned and they applied it to everybody. It's really, yeah. really impressive. Let's, let's talk about like Simone Gerhardt, the very minor character who I really enjoyed every time she was on the screen. Yeah. And you felt, you know, she, she's kind of had an Adriana um from the Sopranos exit, that was actually the most overt callback to one of your favorite films, Miller's Crossing, right? Yeah, and then there was, I mean, it's, it, we, we've talked about the Coen Brothers nods before where it's based on a Coen Brothers movie, but I feel like it's been influenced by things like Blood Simple. There was basically a scene yeah. right out of No Country for Old Men with uh, the store when the guy goes to the bait shop basically to to, to ask about if he's seen, if he'd seen yeah. Ed. Um, but yeah, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, not at all. It's it's just that I wanted to draw attention to one other thing. For as much as we were praising the marketing department uh, a few moments ago when we were talking about the O.J. Simpson story, I think one of the most crucial things about Fargo Season 2 has been the casting. And I don't mean it in the most obvious way, which is, boy, they got good people. It's a little bit more um, thought out, I think, and a little more subtle than that, which is the power of casting someone like Ted Danson, the mm -hmm. power of casting someone like Nick Offerman. This is, the, this is an underutilized... Um, How about casting somebody like Gene Smart? Well, I want to come back to that. But, yeah, but oh, but exactly right. Like the thing about you know people often talk about movie stars, but there's also something as a TV star. And a TV star is someone audiences are instantly in sync with, instantly comfortable with, you know, and you're eager to see no matter what they are doing. And the best of them, like Ted Danson, is not playing the same character from Cheers to CSI to Damages to Bored to Death, but he's using the same toolbox, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So we are instantly with him and. We're listening, basically. We are open to whatever the character is saying. When you put him in this part, he's never played a sort of a kind grandfatherly part before, but that has been present in every part he has played, even the bad ones or the pot-smoking ones on, on Board to Death, right? That cuts out all of the exposition that um, less focused writers might have to do because we know the character immediately. Similarly, like Nick Offerman, this character is not Ron Swanson from Parks and Recreation. And Offerman proves that he's capable of doing a lot more, as he did in that great episode, which was basically the assault on Precinct, um, Minnesota. Right, right. right. That there's a shorthand that the great TV actors can bring that this show is taking full advantage of, so that when you have that scene between Kristen Malati and Nick Offerman in this past episode, it was, was wildly moving and came in the middle of an episode that was, as you mentioned, you know, it was basically like a serrated knife of tension. Yeah, I mean, um, it's it, what you're saying is like, you know, in, in movies... There are a series of maybe there's like ten people alive, maybe even less. Jennifer Lawrence, Chris Pratt, Tom Cruise, uh, yeah. Leonardo DiCaprio, who can basically get a movie greenlit by their association with it. But on the flip side of that, in television and in films, there is a group of about fifty actors, who maybe a hundred that, and I'm sure there's lots more out there who just don't get the opportunities. But you know, people, if you put Stanley Tucci or Ted Danson or Gene Smart or uh you know so many others in your work the baseline of how good it's going to be is like pretty high you know what i mean yeah. it's like but you're going to start at a 500 season and it's just all you need to do is get get over the hump they will save if, anything you put them in i don't know if you've been watching it at all um but there's the fox show the grinder which is turning out to be pretty good especially as far as broadcast sitcoms go you try and do that without Rob Lowe and Fred Savage, you don't have a show. Mm -hmm. Because both of them are those kind of actors where we're like, great, what are those guys doing? Oh, they're brothers? Fun. Yeah. And so we're already in. We're already in. And, you know, I don't want to beat up on our old friend True Detective Season 2 anymore, but I will say that just from a purely audi a pure audience engagement standpoint, 
not even worrying about the scripts that he ended up writing. But Pizzolatto wrote himself into a hole by insisting on casting movie stars, basically. Because when we see Vince Vaughn, we're expecting, if he's going to do the fast-talking funny thing, we're in. Do the thing you're good at, right? Do the thing you're good at, clown. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Make me laugh. He, 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 he exactly. If he, he cast him to prove something. So all of us, involved, everyone involved in the production, everyone involved in the audience is like, okay, show me something. We don't know where we are when we see you. And so all of those episodes were spent watching him basically claw himself to a point of something new. Mm -hmm. That's very impressive. And it's no wonder why I believe, even though he doesn't, I don't think he's given any interviews from what everything I've been led to believe the actors involved with true detective season two still swear by Pizzolatto because he gave them that much rope basically. Yeah. But that's the, the, the experience of watching a limited series is so condensed. You know, if, if it's not the same as having 22 episodes or three seasons, you have to make us care from day one because we got to get moving and get on with the story. Yeah. And, Obviously, True Detective 2 had a hundred other problems, right? But I think that started them in a much lower place. Well, I think that also with True Detective, there is an expectation that it was going to look and feel a certain way. And the directors who took over the second season in some places did really admirable jobs and in other places did their best and, and like did, did totally adequate jobs. But it was very hard to replicate what Carrie Fukunaga did in the first season. And I think that's actually the thing that's not talked about enough with Fargo is just how distinctive and unique it looks and feels. Yeah. The fact that they are somewhat making like a hybrid of a, a Western, like a 50s darker Western with a 70s crime film is really, really interesting. And it's on television every week. You get to watch it. And they're cutting it like it's, you know, 52 Pickup or The French Connection, but they're shooting it like it's some weird Anthony Mann film. And there is still this kind of interpreted ghost spirit of the Coen brothers haunting yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. But less and less explicit as this goes on. I mean, they would never write this story, which is good because they shouldn't be doing that story just as Noah Hawley and his people should not be trying to write the movie they're writing. Yeah. Um, but there's enough of it there. He found a seam in something that they left behind and has just has, has, has explored it. Um, Another question I had for you about it. It was announced this week that it's been greenlit for a third season. Right. Um, that is exciting. That is also daunting. The even I think season two of Fargo was announced before the first season ended, and already amateur sleuths were saying, "Oh, well, it'll be be about Sioux Falls," because you know, having spoken to to Noah for the 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 Grandland podcast I did, he knew that they were getting a chance to do another one, and so by the time he knew that officially, he was able to write in a little more about. Oh, I haven't seen anything like it since then because he was setting up the third, the second season. Yeah, I don't think I've seen anything thus far that would suggest an obvious next season. Um, my question for you is, what what is the obvious next season, or what could be the obvious next season? Well, so it's it's a fool's game to like try and pick that because nobody would have figured out that it would be Keith Carradine's younger self would be the sort of star. No, no, I think people did think that. I think that was starting to be that was at least really that was at least even money. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, you could make the argument that it would be future or past. Mike Milligan was obvious. Obviously, been the. I don't uh, think it's. I don't think he's got much future. I'm going to be honest. I don't know. I have no idea. Honestly. Uh, Otherwise, here's what I will say that I would be interested is to see them break away from and they they have largely this is about a, a two family war going on and 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 a couple of families trying to deal with that but there is still the the central theme of 
ordinary people, the Kirsten Dunst and Jesse Plemons character, being dragged into something extraordinary due to their own malfeasance or sort of greed or whatever. Um, I would be interested to see them break away from that as like the central storytelling device. But I don't know. I mean, I would be curious to see a Fargo that was a little bit more like of this world. But that's sort of the part of the charms of Fargo is that it doesn't feel quite like this world. I think the only thing you can bank on is that it'll probably move in in time again. Um, I think it would be pretty interesting to see them try and tackle to go back further and do the beginnings of the Gerhardt family. And so I don't know if you go back to like post World War II um, and do something like that. That I guess the reason to resist that is that it becomes kind of the gimmick. We're just going to keep hitting a rewind. I don't think these stories, I think that it was smart to set the first one in the not exactly present. I don't remember what year it was set in or not, but it was, I don't think it was set in I don't 2014. Feel, I, feel, I don't feel like people were texting. Yeah, I think it was maybe sent like, I think it was maybe it was set 10 years after the movie-ish. Okay. Um, so that leaves the 80s as a potential decade to explore. Um, I think the exciting thing is exactly what's going to make it so challenging, which is we, no one expected this. Yeah. No one expected this. I think people would have been very satisfied if season one had proven to be some kind of template. Like, we're going to get a movie star to do a really juicy villain performance, and then we're going to let the pieces fall around him. Right. Um, this has been such an enormous step up in every way. Um, what are know, the I, things I, that you think you can't get rid of? Like, can it not, does it have to be a snowy, like, does it have to be snow? It has to be, it has to, it has to be set in that part of the country. There has to be snow, although if you watch this season, they filmed in Calgary in March instead of January, and there was just no snow. Oh, really? Uh, it was a much warmer season, so there's very, very little snow in this whole season. They do not look very cold, and it's because they were not. Um, and I, I think you can catch them kind of cheat sometimes. Why aren't you cold if... enough, Kirsten Dunst? <laughs> exactly. Your ears are not red in this shot. Um, I think you have to set in that part of the country. You have to have, you have to have uh, um, you know, some people talking about hot dishes and being sort of weirdly nice or distant in that same way that's become, you know, the, the, the language of the show and of the movie and of that world. I think the other constant is this idea of evil as a wolf that lurks outside your door. Yeah. And that, you know, there's a misplaced longing for a time that never really was. And I think that's one of the low-key smarter things about this season, which is the first season there was that sense, you know, Bob Odenkirk's character, and that was a great performance by him, really summed up where he gave that long speech about how things used to be, and he doesn't really want to live in a world where things like this are possible. Sure. Um, we go back 20, 30 years. It wasn't that much better then. No, it and never it is. recently, yeah. I think it was this week's episode, Ted Danson says he just wants to live in a place where people don't lock their front doors. Right. But real talk, you should always lock your front door. I don't really care if you live in Mayberry or Well, Manhattan. it's also like Patrick Wilson just got door. back from Vietnam. It's why he's not really that flustered when guys show up when five guys show up at his sheriff's department, like looking to break a prisoner out and he's not going to lose it over that. I mean, right. And the truth and of the matter also, is, is that the world doesn't get older. You do. The world stays the same and you get older and get more scared because you get more responsibilities. You have more to lose. And you've seen things that you don't want your kids to see. Right. And you also see through politicians in this case, played by Bruce Campbell, who's playing a real politician who are being elected by selling a vision of something that never really quite existed. Yeah. The vision of America that he was selling, at least as presented in the show, because I don't want to go off on a tangent, does not square with the American experience lived by Patrick Wilson's character. And that was a really great and subtle scene. Um, 
So, yeah, I guess you could go further back. I guess you could do just about anything, and that's what's going to be the most daunting about it. I mean, if they announced season three this week, that means there's already been a writer's room and they're already planned. So right. this idea has already been had. Right. But I'd be very curious to find out what it is and be very eager to see. Last point on Fargo before we move on, and we're going deep because people have asked us to go a little bit deep on it. Rating's not great. Right. Which I don't really know what to do with. Like, you can't lead horses to water right like or you can but you can't make them drink i don't actually i've never actually dealt with horses so i don't really know how thirsty they get but metaphors aside fx has been at the forefront of saying that doesn't matter so that's why they're doing season three they know it's good it's going to win emmys kirsten dunst is definitely going to get nominated some of the bigger like some of the bigger names will get nominated depend especially depending whether it falls into limited series or if it gets sort of folded into the main drama category um is it surprise you that this isn't doing that well the first season had very very good ratings um, let me, ch- let me ask you a question in response. Does FX need a walking dead to keep taking chances on things like Fargo and you're the worst and like having shows that have like, I mean, do they have a hit show right now? It's a great question. The answer to that is, uh, is no. I think uh, it's like, what's, what's the assumption there is that like you can do season three of a halt and catch fire that has been a critically acclaimed darling and has like a pretty passionate cult following because they print money with The Walking Dead and they are coming off of the sort of crest of Mad Men and Breaking Bad. So there's like a little degree of goodwill built up, but there's no Sons of Anarchy and there's no, I mean, even I'm sure Rescue Me was a more successful show than, you know, than the Americans, right? I, I think the calculus must be thrown off a lot because Sons of Anarchy was an enormous, enormous hit and uh, Bastard Executioner was a big miss mm-hmm. and an expensive miss and is done after one season. Um, having a show like Sons of Anarchy and that viewership on your air makes makes up for a lot of mistakes or a lot of passion projects. I think the AMC example is interesting because, yes, uh, Walking Dead prints money. There's no question about it. But it's also an expensive show to make. Um, the calculation there gets really, really intricate, which is AMC owns Halt and Catch Fire. So they can maximize what they can wring whatever drop of profit they can get out of right. it. They've also been able to, Joel Silverman, the head of the network, was able to articulate to his bosses to whatever degree, whatever numbers he showed them to say, having a critical hit matters for our network, for our brand, for our relationship with the industry. And, um, you know, we can make these numbers work because long-term this will value, well, this will have value. Also all these networks, and we've talked about this before, are trying to build a suite that will be attractive, you know, in a library of contents that when you're paying for them a la carte or over the top, you'll want it. Right. Um, the FX question is really interesting. Uh, American horror story is their biggest hit. Right. Far and away. Um, that is an enormously highly rated show. I bet Crime Story will do really well, too, and they're counting on it. But if you look at their other stuff, like You're the Worst on FXX, which we love, tiny, tiny ratings. It's been renewed because that matters to them. John Landgraf has said that his, for to, for show to be renewed, it has to have, um, what is it, it, he, he has his own metric of, um, of uh, ratings that he takes into account, but also critical acclaim and just engagement, like with the culture or with people. Right. Um, but, you know, Louis comes and goes as it pleases and has like 500,000 people per episode watching it. Um, the Americans, your favorite show, certainly mine something better than that. Uh-huh. They make the finances work. They own it, but it's very poorly rated in comparison to other things. He keeps renewing Tyrant. God knows why. Drama is a big question mark. Yeah, um, drama is a big question mark. I think Fargo makes sense because it's, it's prestige. It's critically adored it's basically has unanimity on that front and it's probably it won an emmy last time it'll probably win another one i mean maybe i'm using an outmoded way of thinking about things maybe it's not the sense that you need game of thrones and it pays for getting on 
you know, I, I, uh, I don't know if that's still the, the model. It does seem like, I understand why Netflix is like, it's good for us to be in business with Marvel and make these shows. And it's good for us to make a lot of shows because as people keep taking back and taking back the rights to their movies, we need somebody to, we need something to offer online subscribers. And that I get that. There's a, a lot of stuff in Vulture this week about ratings, about Netflix, not sharing their ratings about Netflix being like, they're sort of besides the point, you know? Um, but I think it's going to be a while before we stop thinking about things in terms of their popularity warranting their continued existence so until that happens i i don't worry for but i when shows wind up on fx and they and they wind up on amc or even they wind up on cinemax or showtime or hbo you want to feel like they have a safe environment in which to keep going and it's 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 interesting to think about you know does fx need something that is a home run to support their their triples every network needs hits and every network wants hits and Making TV shows, I mean, we talk about it in industry-wide as, like, as a cure-all. Like, oh, if we get into the scripted business, then we'll have a future, you know, in the over-the-top future, or we'll have a devoted audience. And that matters. But making TV shows is fucking expensive. Yeah. Like, a season of TV, $100 million, maybe, um, depending. And one of the least reported numbers, and it's going to continue to be the least reported because no one wants to talk about it, is the budgets on these things. Are they and going they down? Vary wildly they vary wildly i mean obviously nothing is ever going to be more expensive at least in the near term as game of thrones you know um which is which is well over 100 million dollars right. but um you know the the numbers game that these networks and these studios are playing with foreign rights and and um streaming rights and where it goes next i mean this is an insane show game it's it's i don't i don't envy these people at all and, how the, they're making and it these work. shows that we're talking about on fx don't really have the same i mean hbo can sell special edition Christmas box sets of Game of Thrones for the next 30 years. You know what I mean? They could continue to repackage and resell just the same way that Lord of the Rings has a new cut every Christmas. It seems like you can do that with certain properties. You can't do that with Fargo. There is not that like you get what you get with Fargo with the Americans. Although Fargo is recycled IP. I mean, we'd make fun of that, Yeah. but the reason Fargo is a TV show has nothing to do with the talent behind it. Right. The reason if it was called show, Duluth, no one would care. But it's the reason it's a TV show is because MGM was looking at its library and be like, how can we monetize this IP that we own? What can we do? And it's a great and a rare thing that, that Warren Littlefield, the old NBC boss, and Noah Hawley and John Landgraf got involved and turned it into something really good. But if you want to look at the future of this stuff, look look the broader picture of what FX is doing. And they're struggling just like everyone else because this I, doing the Ryan Murphy stuff, doing the miniseries, doing Fargo has become a very good thing for them, clearly. But, okay, so The Walking Dead is a hit, so they do The Strain. That's a reasonable choice to make in that world, but that's not a good show. No. Again, they found a way to make it work, but that's not a good show. And I don't think, you know, if you held people at gunpoint with the network, I think they would probably agree with you. Um, so the other thing that, that Noah Hawley is doing is um, he's doing something based on X-Men IP. He's doing yeah. a show called Legion, which is, you know, I think, again, they're going to try to FX it. They're going to try to make something classier and better and more interesting than what you would think. But that's the sandbox everybody's playing in and everyone has to. It's interesting stuff. Um, we should wrap up there. I think next week we'll be back. We'll be talking about the Nick next week. We promise. Yeah. Uh, we will hit up the season finale of Leftovers and um, the episode, you know, ten of thirty-seven of of Homeland this season. And uh, I don't know. Maybe we'll try and do some special stuff. I mean, Fargo has how many more episodes? Two. Two. Okay. So uh, we'll definitely be back Monday. It might be a little later on Monday than usual. Uh, as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to our second of the week. We hope we didn't bore you. Next week, buddy, yeah. we're gonna. I'm gonna be in that pool house with you. Yeah, can't wait. We'll be out there. 
All right, man. I'll see you. See you Monday. Great job, Baranski.